How are you going to eat that many bagels? Hold on. Cheesecake break. Just finishing my last piece. Um, this is such a good piece of the podcast. Um, <laughs> so I'm trying to think of a word to describe the Tampa Bay Lightning. Welcome to 32 Thoughts, the podcast. Jeff Merrick, Elliot Friedman, and Amal Delich along with you. After game three, Tampa wins three to two for each series now at two to one. Andre Palat, seventh rounder. We love our seventh rounders. Scores the uh, the heroic goal. So does Tampa. Actually, seventh round pick. That was Andre Palat's 10th playoff game-winning goal. So amongst active players, who's number one? Mm. Active. In playoffs, right? Playoffs, yeah. Game-winning goals. Crosby? Joe Pavelski with 14. Wow. You know what else he is? Also a seventh-round pick. We love our seventh-rounders around here, Elliot Friedman. Look at you dropping the knowledge off the top of this podcast. I am peaking early. Don't get used to it. I'm not going to sustain throughout the uh, the entire podcast. By the way, before we start the podcast. (laughs) We just did. I know, but I want there's something I wanted to say at the uh, top of it. (laughs) Okay, go. So uh, I wanted to promote something. Chris Snow uh, of the Calgary Flames is doing a, an ALS fundraiser. It's called the Weak Side Strong Challenge. Now, Chris's Twitter feed is at Chris Snow CGY. At Chris Snow CGY. He uses the wrong way of doing Calgary. C-A-L, we all know, is the proper way of doing it. Oh, my, Elliot. So he actually had Chris Sale, the Boston Red Sox pitcher, do it. He threw one pitch as a right-hander to help support the cause. I'm accepting the weak side strong challenge for ALS research. Here we go. Oh God. (laughs) Sometimes they swing at us. I nominate Nate Iavoldi for the weak side strong challenge uh, for ALS. If anybody else uh, wants to learn about this, please go to weaksidestrong.org. You can donate, you can just learn more about this. And uh, I'm going to do mine on Monday. I saw Cassie Campbell Pascal did one. She posted with her daughter, Brooke, on Sunday. Hi, everybody. It's Cassie Campbell Pascal. This is my daughter, Brooke. And we're going to play a game of washers left-handed to support Weak Side Strong. Go to weaksidestrong.org and help end ALS. We love you, Chris, Kelsey, Willa, and Cohen. I challenge the Hockey Night in Canada studio to the Weak Side Strong Challenge. You have 48 hours. And I just wanted to call people's attention to it. You're probably very familiar with uh, Chris's story and the fundraising efforts he's done over the past couple of years. It's been a pretty big story in hockey. So I wanted to promote with you, Jeff, and Amal, and here on the podcast, the Weak Side Strong Challenge. And again, it's Chris Snow at Chris Snow CGY. So I don't like to force anyone to do anything because really I can't. But I would like to encourage everyone, if you want to do it, Mm -hmm. please go ahead and help Chris and his family in these great fundraising efforts. That is an amazing, amazing family. Every single person in that family is outstanding. And this is a wonderful thing uh, that Chris is doing. All right, let's get to the hockey. So as I was trying to say before I was so appropriately... (laughs) Because I liked what you did there. It's but Chris, rudely right? interrupted. No, not rude. Because, hey, man, if it's, it's, if it's for the Snow family, I'm all about it. I'm totally cool with it. 
So I'm trying to think of a word to describe the Tampa Bay Lightning. And the thing I keep coming back to is resilient. Do you have another word to describe the Tampa Bay Lightning? Because what we saw on Sunday afternoon was pretty impressive. That thing could have gone off the track fast Mm -hmm. as, you know, it became pretty obvious they wanted to get as close to and, you know, just, you know, bump Shesterkin as often as they could. It ended up costing a couple of power play goals. They're behind right away. It's 2 nothing. That thing could have unraveled quickly, but it didn't because they're the Tampa Bay Lightning. How do you describe this team, Elliot? First of all, I thought that was a great game. That was one of the best games of the playoffs. And, you know, I got a text from a team executive in the third period when it was 2-2. And he said, next goal wins the series. Hmm. That was his quote. Next goal wins the series. And I'm like, well, I understand that. If the Rangers score it, I would tend to agree with you. But even if Tampa wins and is still down 2-1, you think next goal wins the series? And his response was kind of like, did I stutter? (laughs) And, uh, you know, I thought it was an interesting take on it. I thought Stamkos' interview with Dave Amber at the end of the game was really interesting in the sense that He kind of talked about they're getting a taste of their own medicine, what it's like for other teams to play Vasilevsky. I'm not a person who believes that that goal won the series for Tampa. I think the Rangers are really fast for them. I think it's a tough handle for Tampa without point. Their power play is unbelievable. But as I've said to you many times, Jeff, I never pick against the Lightning. Never. Mm -hmm. And this is the reason. They find a way. And Kucherov... I didn't think he was good in game one. Despite the goal, I didn't think he was very good in game two. He was unbelievable in game three. Just phenomenal. And it wasn't just about that pass, but let's talk about that pass. How many players in the NHL have the vision to make that pass, have the instinct to make that pass, have the instinct and the ability to make it as perfect as Kucherov did, which allowed Palat to fire it before Shosturkin could set up? Like, you can't let Igor Shosturkin set up for a shot. Like, it has to be on your blade and off your blade instantly. And at that moment, with Palat coming down the right side, the only way you're going to make that shot happen is with a perfect pass. And Frege, he just makes it look so easy. Yeah, he does. It just looks like matter of fact with Kucherov like he's you know just sort of you know woken up rolled out of bed put on some coffee and put on his pants like okay this is just what I do he looks so sleepy eyed I know it's just like yeah this is what I do I just make these elite level plays I just fell out of bed and now I'm going to make one of the greatest (laughs) passes in the history of hockey good row the other way to center ice backhands it in great defensive play by Kopp Sorelli behind his own net to the far corner and Hedman up the middle Kucherov minute to go in the third Nikita Kucherov back for Hedman to center ice and Kucherov up the right wing Across the blue line, pops to Stamkos left circle. Stamkos, shoot, save made by Shesterkin. Rebound to Chernak right point. Left point, Hedman. Across ice feed, Pallad! Score! Pallad! Wow. Andre Pallad! Wow. Of a touch pass from Kucherov! 3-2 lightning with 41.6 seconds left in the third! Wow. What a pass. <laughs> Unbelievable touch pass by Kucherov to Palat, who beats Shesterkin on the short side over the catching glove. Perfect little passing. Goes to Stamkos. Stamkos shoots it out front. And then Chernak goes to Hedman, who passes it to Kucherov. And Kucherov to Palat. 
and Pilat scored. That was the Lightning's 51st shot. That was, by the way, the only five-on-five goal of the game. That was the power play game up until then. It was the power play game. And the other thing about that, too, is that I actually thought, upon watching it again, that he might have just done the Mario Lemieux where he lets it go through him. He fakes touching the puck, and it goes to Paul Carey, who scores. But no, he still caught it and stopped (laughs) it and, and put it in a perfect place. The Rangers were upset about the crease crashing, and they complained about it after the game. They were coming pretty hard at Igor and maybe over the line a couple of times. It doesn't seem like it phases him a whole lot, though, does it? No, it doesn't. It phases me more than him. You know, I don't like it. I don't think it's a you know big part of it. And hopefully, uh, when we talk to the supervisor tomorrow, they'll take care of some of that because it wasn't right. You know, they're not wrong, but it's not like the referees handled it poorly. I actually thought they did a good job of calling penalties on it. You know, they called them twice for it, once Riley Nash and once Corey Perry, and Perry didn't like the call, and Shesterkin did embellish it a little bit. But, you know, the fact is... (laughs) Yeah, just a little bit. But the fact is, like, they told teams early on that they were going to enforce that. And Perry had nothing to complain about there. It was an obvious penalty. And, you know, the other thing I really think is that, you know, I don't know what, what more the Rangers can complain about. What more could they have called? So by the end of the game, and this is usually the way things work for me, Elliot, like at the time there were penalties that bother you. And maybe there's a couple of penalties in a row that bother you. Maybe sometimes there's a five minute major and then another penalty right after against the same team and it bothers you. But generally by the end of the game, I'm usually fine with officiating. And this was one of them. Mm. Like at times I kind of had that uncomfortable feeling like, "Hmm, okay, but, but I didn't get that at the end of today's game. Did you get that? Because I did. I don't think refereeing decided this game. I'll tell you this. I know some people who didn't like the Truba penalty, the one where he lost his stick and grabbed. Yeah. I generally didn't think that officiating decided this game. It was a huge win for Tampa. They're not coming back down from 3 nothing against this team as good as they are. Game four on Tuesday is going to be a spectacular game. I have no doubt. I still think the Rangers are more than capable of winning this series. You know, the one thing that concerns me for New York is... Strom. And Goodrow. Yeah. I'm looking at Colorado right now, and I'm thinking, can they win the Stanley Cup without Girard and Kadri and Kemper being uncertain? And my biggest question about the Rangers is not the way they play, because I think they're really good. But if Strom can't play... And Goodrow is clearly far from 100%. Mm-hmm. What's that going to do to them? I always, with the Rangers, will. I know that this is big, and I get it. Like, And you know what's a double killer here for the Rangers is, as Strom goes out, Goodrow came in to take his place. Yes. Like, that's who's filling that spot. And now there's questions about both of them. This team has Shishterkin, Zibanejad, Kreider, Panarin, Kopp, Fox, Lingren, like they're too fast for Tampa, and just like with Colorado, mm-hmm. you know, just like with Colorado, I mean, pick the murderers row. We're going to get to Colorado Edmonton here in a second. You know, as much as we thought this was going to be all about '97 and '29, this thing's been about Kale McCarr, and to another extent, you know, the the, the story of Pavel Francouz here. I still think that there's still enough there on the Rangers. Just like I think there's enough there with the Colorado Avalanche, and we'll get there in a couple of seconds. I thought Adam Fox had a great game. I thought Artemi Panarin had a great game, but 
Igor Shosturkin, even in a losing effort, 48 save performance. Phenomenal. 48 save. He did everything to keep this team in the game and everything to help this team win game three. And they just came a puck short. He was fantastic again. Yep. What more can you say? Nobody thought anybody was going to sweep here. No. Uh, although we may have a sweep on the other side. Uh, Avs are up three to nothing now. Colorado four, Edmonton two in game three. Uh, before we get to the game, we'll talk about the Evander Kane uh, situation. A one-game suspension for the boarding call. A minute six in to game three. The boarding on Nazem Kadri, who as Jared Bednar told us on Saturday night, is gone for at least the remainder of this series. Your thoughts? They sent him home to Denver, and they're trying to see if he's got to have surgery. If he's got to have surgery, he may be, he's probably gone for the season. So yeah. they're still trying to determine all of this. Put it this way. The Avalanche and Kadri are not happy. They think the suspension is too short. And the Oilers and Kane are not happy because Hagel didn't get suspended at all for what they felt was a similar play. So as you can imagine here, everybody is unhappy and nobody feels satisfied of either of the teams. I don't know why anybody would expect anything different. You know, the one thing I said to someone in Edmonton is, you know, I don't understand why people say an injury shouldn't matter. In a court of law, if someone is injured, the punishment is more if you do anything than if they're not. Correct. I mean, it's that simple. That's the way the legal system works. So I've never understood why people say to me, the injury shouldn't matter. Here's the way I look at it. The injury should matter once there's an offense that's been established. If something happens and someone gets injured because of it and there wasn't, you know, it, it is not a direct reflection of an action of another person, then I think it doesn't matter if that person got injured. It's just a matter of the course of play. But once there's an offense that's been established, then yeah, to me, it does matter if the player has been injured or not. I think that's fair. I, I think that's very reasonable. You know, everybody leaves this with a really unsatisfied feeling. I definitely think the Oilers feel that they have been on the wrong end of a lot of things. And at this time of the year, everybody plays us against the world, right? They say nobody believes in us. Nobody thinks we can win. They said we couldn't do it. You were the number one team in the league. <laughs> and some of it is exactly. They, they, <laughs> it's, it's like... I remember the late Pat Burns, who was so good at me against the world or us against the world. Sure. When he won his Stanley Cup as a head coach of the Devils in 2003, I remember him saying, people didn't want me to win. And I remember the media looking at him going, who didn't want you to win here? Like, it was. it's just funny. It's the way it <laughs> always goes. Right now, the Oilers fans as a group, they should be enjoying a great run. You know, their best run in the playoffs in 16 years, but they're mad. They're not feeling that way. They're not feeling that way right now. Because number one, the longer you go, the harder it is to lose. If you're going to lose the Stanley Cup final as a fan, you much rather lose in the first round because then you save yourself two months of torture. <laughs> but hang on. But the one thing about that is later on in your life, like once your career is over, you look back on it and you say, hey, we kind of did something there. That was fine. We got far. But at the moment, you're right. It really, really sucks. 
And look, I, I don't want to say that this series is over. It's a huge challenge. It's an enormous challenge. But those fans right now, they're so mad. And I, I know how mad they are because it seems like everything is going against them. As one of my friends who lives there said, it's like we got the benefit of the doubt on the Coleman call, which, by the way, I disagreed with. And now ever since then, for getting that one going our way, everything else is going against us. The Makar play, which I thought was the right call, the Yamamoto injury, and people say, well, blindside hit, blindside hit. Those were take- That rule was taken out of the rule book. That rule doesn't exist anymore. They're talking McKinnon slew foot. Jeff, I'm sorry, but I didn't think that was a slew foot. But I saw a lot of that as a battle for the puck, and McKinnon got the leverage on him because Drysaddle's not 100% healthy. I want to clarify one thing about Slewfoots really quick, Elliot. Yeah. The thing about Slewfoots is, and I've been told this by people in the league repeatedly, the thing about Slewfoots is be careful with how we throw it around because it's not just the trip for the skate from behind. It's also the arm comes across the chest and pushes downwards. That's part of what makes it a slew foot. Otherwise, it is, quote unquote, just a trip. Like to me on that play, I'm cool if McKinnon gets a tripping call, but let's not call it a slew foot because it wasn't a slew foot. I got to tell you, I thought it was a battle. And I think that Dreisaitl's lack of health, especially in his lower body, has affected him at times with that kind of thing. Like nobody is more frustrated than McDavid. If you saw the look on his face at the end of game two, I think, what was it, Jeff, the empty netter? You could see how mad he was. And I don't think anybody would blame him. He's playing so hard. But like, here's the thing, like for everybody out there who thinks that like we're biased against the Oilers, whose name is on the building? It's Rogers (laughs) Place. Yep. Just out of morbid curiosity, who does everybody think my employer would like to win this series? <laughs> yeah. Get Canadian teams deep into the playoffs. But like, I understand the Oilers fans' frustration. Like I said, Jeff, the longer you go, the harder it is to lose. And I think the toughest thing about this is a week ago, not even really, you're celebrating one of the greatest victories in your franchise in recent memory. You beat your hated rival. You're feeling so good about yourself. And now here, look where you are. Like it it turns quick and it hurts. Like I get it. I totally get it. And what we have been reminded of here or learned, you can pick the phrase, Jeff, is that not only are the Avalanche an elite offensive team, they're also an elite defensive team. And they have found a way to slow down and shut down the Oilers. You know where else they're elite? Where's that? Escaping pressure in their own zone. Yeah. They get out of the zone. And a lot of this is Cal McCarr, I understand that, who's just beautiful to watch. Yeah. They escape the defensive zone so quickly, efficiently, and creatively. It's not even funny. It is so efficient. It is so fast. They get the puck up the ice, Elliot, so quick. They move that puck so fast and it's almost become you know just one of my favorite things to watch kill McCarr under pressure one man breakout but it's like a little rubik's cube okay how's he going to get out of this one 
growing up, you know who one of my my idols was, and I would read every single book about this person. I would watch documentaries and 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 movies, and I used to love Houdini. I would read everything about Harry Houdini, and this guy is the closest thing I've seen to Harry Houdini escaping under pressure. And he does it so casually. It's so much fun watching someone trail him in the defensive zone to see how he's going to give him the slip. It's borderline hilarious because you know it's coming and he's going to make it look really casual and it's going to be really sudden. So make sure your eyelids are propped open because you don't want to miss it. It's Houdini-esque watching this guy escape pressure. I just love it. I absolutely love it for each. He's a phenomenal player. And I am now convinced that not only is he going to win a few Norrises here and there, he's going to win a Hart Trophy. This playoff is going to put him on the map to win a Hart Trophy. And you know what? Fox might win one too. But I think McCarr for sure wins a Hart Trophy now because of these playoffs. Yeah. I will be shocked if his career doesn't end without him winning a Hart Trophy. He's the best player on the team. Yes. And you know how much I love Gabriel Landeskog. You know how much I love Land- Kale McCarr is the best player on the team. Yes, he is. He is the best player. Okay, so a couple of things from this game, too. One thing, and being at the studio on Saturday night for hockey night, it became pretty obvious pretty early. And we all kind of looked at each other and kind of thought and said the same thing. That building was quiet. Like, is that they say a nervous quiet, an anxious quiet? Like, that was bizarre. Like some of the loudest buildings I've ever been in are for Edmonton Oilers playoff games. Like during that run to the cup in 2006, I went to games against Anaheim and games against San Jose. Easily, Elliot, some of the loudest buildings I've ever been in in my life. Saturday was the opposite of that. You could hear whispers from way, way in the back. That's how quiet that was. I do think it all changed with the major penalty. McDavid had just scored. Yes. McDavid had just scored to make it one nothing, and it was party time, and Edmonton's getting back in the series. And then 106 in, Kane does what Kane did. And the other thing, too, is sometimes a big penalty kill will recharge the crowd. Mm-hmm. And you would think that one would have done it, but it didn't. I just think they were nervous. You know why? Why? Because Colorado was all over Edmonton. The forwards didn't touch, like nobody on Edmonton, like none of the players. Mike Smith certainly did. Mike Smith was really good in that penalty kill. Mm-hmm. The Oilers players didn't touch the puck. It was freakish. Smith made, and I will, I know Mike Smith had a challenging night. I know the the nurse tip and the JT Comfort goal, I get all that. But on that five minute penalty kill, Mike Smith was excellent. He was the only Oiler that touched the puck. They were dominated for five minutes. And I agree with you. I think that it was quiet. I think they were nervous. You know, the way that that second game went, the first game was such a crazy, great game. Mm-hmm. But the way the second game went with the 4 nothing shutout, you don't normally see that happen to the Oilers. And I think you're right. I, I thought it was really nervous. I-, I think, unfortunately, the major penalties sucked the life out of the building. You know, it's really a shame I look at Colorado right now, and it's the same question I asked them earlier. They won a Stanley Cup in 2001 with Peter Forsberg injured and unavailable for the final series. Now, they could be without Gerard, assuming they close this out. They could be without Gerard and Kadri and potentially Kemper. Like, we'll see where that one goes. Can you beat Tampa or the Rangers without two and maybe three of them? I still think there's enough there with Colorado. I I really do. 
I think you could be right. I think you could. And one thing that will really help is if Comfort continues going down this road. He's been excellent. I'd like to say this about Smith. Like, we got the full Smith in game three. Unbelievable plays. Like, Franzos is the same way. Like, that second goal, you couldn't believe he whiffed on it, but then he came right after it and made a huge save. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at the goaltending in the other series, it's two best goalies in the world right now, Vasilevsky and Shesterkin. And you look at the two goalies in this series, you know, Smith and Franzos, and you're getting incredible saves and absolute what-did-I-just-see moments. Yeah. Now, would you start Koskinen at all? That's what I was going to ask you. Would you uh, see? I think you've cast your die for Mike Smith and you're living and dying on Mike Smith, and that's the guy you're going with. I agree. He's your guy. Now, let's again, for every comfort goal that squeaks through, there's that five minute penalty kill where Mike Smith is outstanding. He made some unbelievable saves. Unbelievable. So, Kevin pointed this out. Early in that five-minute power play for Colorado, did you see that first shot by Rantanen, the wrist shot? Who fires wrist shots at 85? And Smith picks it off like it's nothing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's a laser. And Smith picks it off. But that's the thing. Like, you're right. We got the full Mike Smith buffet. We got got appetizer. We got mains. And we got dessert. We got the full Mike Smith on Saturday night. That's why I say for every comfort goal, there's that five-minute kill. He makes like big, huge, impossible saves. And then sometimes there's a Comfort goal. And Cogliano will play it off the wall. Bouchard in a foot race with JT Comfort. Comfort wins it. Comfort shoots. He <laughs> shoots! Go JT Comfort! 877 goals now! Out of the box, into the net. And the Avalanche have the lead back with 718 to go in the third period. Oh my goodness gracious, the puck comes up the ice and JT Comfort with strength, with, with fresh legs, he's able to hold off Bouchard and then he squeaks that one right past Smith, right along the ice. Comfort red hot in this series. He had two goals in game six against St. Louis. And think about Comfort for a second here, too. And he's been a story through these playoffs, too. I know everyone at Michigan's crazy. Here's another one of our guys. Think about what, what's going through JT Comfort's mind as he's sitting in the box on that play for that two-minute power play for Edmondson. Probably the same thing that Kucherov was thinking when he was sitting in there for the double minor for high-sticking. You see, Louis like, look, he can't even watch the play. He's got his head down. He's just like refusing to watch, right? That was that was Kucherov. I would imagine Comfort was the same way. And then the way that Comfort beat Bouchard, like that was a guy that just got sprung from prison, and he was like chasing a good meal. Like, did you not get the sense like he was not going to fail on getting that puck from Evan Bouchard? And Bouchard, who had just hit a post previous. He was not going to fail on that play. And I don't know who was more surprised at the goal, Mike Smith or JT Comfer. It was Comfer because he was looking for the puck in his pads. He was trying to find it. He's like, where's the rebound? <laughs> that was a fascinating game. Jeff, how would you feel about uh, Dylan Holloway making his NHL debut in the playoffs Monday night? In a potential closeout game. You go for the Hail Mary pass and bring in the first rounder from, you know, the the kid from Wisconsin. I would not be surprised. If they <sighs> wow. Because first of all, the coach knows him. Oh, big time. Yeah. Yeah. The coach had him this year. And secondly, like this is a big part of your future. Give him a taste. 
I had a taste of cheesecake tonight. My wife made a beautiful <laughs> red velvet cheesecake. It was delicious. I think Dylan Holloway deserves a red velvet cheesecake taste of the playoffs. My thought on it is this is the most important game of Edmonton's season. You don't just do it to give a kid a taste. You do it if you think the kid can help you. I'm just saying go for it. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. I meant a taste as in he understands what it's like, right? Yeah. Yeah. Listen, the fan in me wants to see it. Absolutely. But then I don't have a hand on the wheel. You know, I'm not Jay Woodcroft here. So from my, you know, behind this microphone here at 9.52 p.m. Eastern on a Sunday evening, yeah, put Holloway in. I want to see it. I want to see what this kid can do because we love sports stories like this. Absolutely. But I'm not the guy making the decision. You would do it? Yes, I would. And the other thing, too, is they tried Malone uh, the other day. Yeah. And they've got Shore. But when you lose Yamamoto, you need somebody who can score. Yep. And Holloway can score. He can score. What did you make of Franco's in that game? 27 save performance. He made the big save when it mattered. He McDavid. made the mistake, but he made the big save. I'll say this. I think McDavid's going to have a monster game for. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he can do anything even more than he's already done. I think he's going to have a monster game on Monday night. And if Edmonton goes down, it goes down with McDavid having a, a Titanic game. Edmonton might just play six forwards and have McDavid <laughs> fill seven spots. They're going to dress 10 defensemen <laughs> and six forwards. He might play 35 minutes on Monday night. I think you empty the tank. I'm with you. If you're Jay Woodcroft, just empty the tank on your big guys. I'm with you. If you're going to go down, go down swinging with your big guys. Maybe 35 is too low. Maybe let's go <laughs> Let's go 40. He plays two periods. Or you go against what... Uh, now, Now Brad McCrimmon was the most when he... The late, great Brad McCrimmon, when he played with the Brandon Weekings, would play the whole game. Like important games. Certainly in the playoffs, I know that, uh, that he did. I don't know that we get to that level for Connor McDavid, but I'm with you. I think we're going to see some big numbers. Uh, for Connor McDavid for Time on Ice. Saturday, you talked about something pretty interesting here. If your name is not Jonathan Taves, if your name is not Patrick Kane, if your name is not Seth Jones, Chicago's listening. Yes, those three have no move clauses, and so they're not available uh, at this time. Nobody else has a full no move clause. Everybody else, there are some partials, like Jake McCabe has a partial, for example. I believe Tyler Johnston has a partial. But generally, everybody else there is available. And what one GM said to me was you compare it to Brandon Hagel. And that was that Chicago put him out there, but you had to blow them away for them to consider it. And I think the thing I should stress is just because all these names are out there doesn't mean that things are absolutely 100% going to happen. I simply think they just want to know the market value of all their guys. The question's going to come down to is, do you come at them with anything that makes them think? And Jeff, when I told you this, what was your response? Alex DeBrinkett? Yes. And I was told you can ask. I mean, it would take a huge offer, but I don't think it's impossible. Wow. See, that is a, uh, that's a whopper, I think, for, uh, for a lot of people. We'll, uh, we'll see what happens with the Blackhawks this offseason. I, honestly, I know that, you know, the names aren't on the table because they have the no moves, and that's Jonathan Taves and, and Patrick Kane, but. And Jones. And Seth Jones, but do they have the conversation with them at least? I'm assuming at some point that's going to happen. 
you know, don't forget, Taves and Kane have only one more year mm-hmm. uh, before their UFAs, so they have a lot of the say here. I mean, look, like they've already said that they're going to keep these guys abreast of all their plans. So it's not like anything that's happening here is going to come as a surprise to those guys. And put it this way, like what I reported on Saturday night, I'm pretty positive it wasn't. I think those players all knew uh, about the situation. You know, the one thing about the Brinkhead is he's got one more year at 6.4 mm-hmm. and then he's doing extension. Now he's an RFA at the end of the contract, but he is doing extension. So that is one thing that, if you're going to trade for him, you have to realize that you're going to have to do that bit of business too. And I don't think teams are unaware of that. I think they love to brink it, and it's going to be interesting to see where that goes. What's the hardest thing to do in the NHL? Score. What does Alex DeBrinket do? Uh, hold on one second. Alex DeBrinket scores 41 times. Yes. You know what that means, Jeff? That's half a goal a game. <laughs> That's Really good, especially for some teams, perhaps we've talked about that need players who can score an easy goal. Yes. That just have a quick release and can take a lot of pressure off your team because they can score 41 times in a season. Oh, by the way, one other thing about Chicago, I heard one of the coaches who was on their radar is Todd Reardon, I think is one of the coaches they're going to talk to. Of Pittsburgh, who's done yes. some remarkable work, specifically. Well, we, we know he works with the uh, with with the with the blue line there. He's done some great work with that blue line. Former head coach of the Capitals. Yep. Longtime coach in Pittsburgh before and after that. Um, we'll see where it goes, but uh, I believe he's one of the potential coaches they're going to talk to. Um, that would be interesting for Pittsburgh because I heard Philly had a long interview with Volucci, and uh, now Reardon. Chicago, if those two were to be hired, yeah. Mike Sullivan would suddenly look very lonely on the Pittsburgh bench. <laughs> you know who Todd Reardon was great for, I was told, specifically? Latang, Cody Cece. Oh, I could see it. Remember how great Cody Cece looked with the Pittsburgh Penguins? Mm-hmm. And I know they you know, made, a, made him an offer to, to, to try to keep him and you know, keep him there with Todd Reardon, who really brought up the best in Cody Cece. And listen, Cody Cece, good for him. He ended up ringing the bell and getting a really nice contract. Uh, out of all of it, but um, Todd Reardon was great uh, for Cody Cece. Winnipeg Jets coaching search. So although Kevin Dayoff at the NHL Scouting Combine did not want to comment on it when I asked him about it on, it would have been Friday morning, uh, a couple of names that we reported on Saturday, uh, they have spoken to Scott O'Neill and they have spoken to Rick talk it i believe mm-hmm. amongst others mm-hmm. uh, Ellie, we all know that they've spoken to to barry trotz and you threw an interesting name out there saturday as well jim montgomery and he i wouldn't be surprised if montgomery is a chicago guy potentially too mm-hmm. um the st louis coaches i've heard teams like all three of them to varying degrees jim montgomery i did not realize this he played for the manitoba moose so there is a little bit of a connection there. Mm-hmm. Actually, I wanted to talk about something with you. Sure. I got a note from someone I know who lives in Winnipeg, and he said that um, you know he doesn't like that it always seems to be someone with a with a Winnipeg or a Manitoba or a connection that always seems to be mentioned for these jobs. You know, Arneal obviously has a connection there. I didn't realize Montgomery has a connection there. You know, talk it doesn't. So it's interesting. He'll be happy to hear a different name. And, 
you know, you know, he was asking what I thought about that. And, you know, it's not something I reached out to ask anyone there now, but I've talked about it uh, with people before. And Paul Maurice was a guy who didn't have Winnipeg connections, so they have gone out before. But, you know, one of the things I've talked about with them is that in the past is that I think Winnipeg is a very unique market in the NHL. It's a small town, but it's a very passionate town about its team. The fans love their Jets. They care a lot. That passion is a great thing. I will. I never think it's bad to have fans who are rabid about your team. And creative. And creative. And some of the most creative fans in the NHL. Its climate is unique. Is that a polite enough way for me to say it? Cold? Uh, it's, it's a fishbowl. And, you know, the Jets have felt at times that it takes a person to really understand what they're getting into to go there. And it, that's not a bad thing. It's just that if you're not used to it, it can be a big adjustment. And I think that's why the Jets have a real partial lean to people who either are from there, like Trotz is, or have had experience being there, like Arneal has or Jim Montgomery would have. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean they go in that direction. Maurice is an example of where they changed it. But this is such a huge offseason for them. This is such a big hire for that team that I, I do think they look at it and say, okay, we can't, I don't know if risk is the right word, but we have to make sure that the person who comes here will understand the situation that they're getting into and the market they're going to. And so... Look, I don't think that means you should shut out other good candidates, like, say, a Rick Tockett, as you mentioned. But I think if it comes down to someone who you think will be more comfortable in the environment that they're going into, I don't think that's a wrong thing to look at. You know how I always thought was going to end up as a head coach of the Winnipeg Jets, Elliot? Uh, let me think. Let me think. I am going to say... Well, are we talking about the late Dale Howarchuk kind of thing? Exactly. I'm actually wearing the Howarchuk Strong shirt right now as we hey, do this. Hey, that's awesome. Like he's, first of all, beautiful family. I miss Dale. I miss every conversation, you know, calling up, checking in on the Barry Colts and talking to Dale Howarchuk. Wonderful guy, really intelligent, super coach. You know, I think I've told the story before about, you know, Dale training um, Tanner Pearson and, you know, having him shoot with his eyes closed and trying to hear what it sounded like when the puck hit various parts of the goalposts or the crossbar. Dale Howardstruck used to have that ability. He could tell whether he hit the post or the crossbar and whether the puck hit and went out or hit and went in just by the sound of it, tuning your ears into your shot, knowing that you're going to have to get the shot off fast. So you have your eyes closed as you train and just get the shot off and get it just underneath the bar instinctively. Train Shifley, Andrew Mangiapane in Calgary, Rasmus Anderson with Cal Kevin LeBanc. Like his fingerprints are still all over the NHL. And I always thought that, you know, eventually Dale Howardchuk was going to make his way to Winnipeg to coach because it was, you know, it's, it was pretty obvious that he was a great junior hockey coach, one of the best, but he could have gone on to the NHL. And I always thought that Winnipeg was a place he was going to end up in. Mm -hmm. The one guy that I look at and say, I always thought, but that's to your point. Yeah. That's a guy that got Winnipeg. 
And that's a guy that Winnipeg loved, but he understood Winnipeg and he loved Winnipeg and always went back to Winnipeg. Like to what, like I'm hearing you talk about people that have been there before and then coming back to coach, man, that's Howard Chuck. He got it. He loved it. He stayed. He kept going back. He, like, all of those things you're talking about, that's Dale. You know who wanted to be interviewed there this year it was Randy Carlisle. Yeah. Randy Carlisle wanted to be interviewed for the head coaching job of the Jets. Now, I don't think that's going anywhere, but there are people who really understand and know how special it can be, and he's one of them. But I think it's a great point you made, like Howard Chuck. I remember there was one year where Claude Noel was really struggling, and I was starting to hear rumors of Howard Chuck's going to go and be the coach there, and he was still in Barry at the time. Mm-hmm. And I called someone there, and I called a couple other people, and one person called me back and I'm not going to say who it was. And they called me back and they said, look, you would be doing everybody here a real favor if you said that it, Dale Howard Chuck's not going to be the head coach of the Winnipeg Jets. And I said, why? And they go, it's just not going to happen. And it's a rumor that needs to go away. And I remember I said to the person, I'm not going to say it if it's going to happen. I'm willing to report if it's definitely not going to happen, but I'm not going to say it just to, if it's not true. And they said to me, it's not going to happen. And I remember I made a few calls and a few other people told me, no, it's not going to happen. And I remember talking about with one particular person and I said, it's not going to happen. He said, no. And we kind of talked about how it was too bad that the timing wasn't right. Cause as, as you said, it would have been fantastic. It would have been a really special and tremendous thing, but it just never occurred, unfortunately. Patrice Bergeron and the Selkie Trophy. Elliot, for the fifth time, no one has uh, won this award more than Bergeron now. He had been tied with Bob Gainey, winning this thing four times. Patrice Bergeron is your Selkie Trophy winner in a uh, in a reveal that should surprise exactly no one. Like sometimes the Selkie is, you know, based on reputation. Sometimes this one was one of the most legit deserved Selkie trophies by just about every single metric, uh, whether they be, you know, uh, underlying or boxcar. Take your pick. This guy earned a Selkie trophy and it became pretty obvious early on this season. Your thoughts on Patrice Bergeron? You know me. I'm the president of the Bergeron fan club. That guy can do absolutely no wrong in my eyes. Mm -hmm. Patrice Bergeron could probably come and let the air out of my car tires. And I would say, great job, Patrice. Can you do that again after I refill them? You know, Patrice, it was actually my fault. I'm not going to tell you why, (laughs) but it was actually my fault. (laughs) I I left my wheels in a way that they were taunting you. (laughs) I love Bergeron. You know that. Um, yeah. It was weird. Like I, before the Selkie was announced, I saw some pictures. I guess he attended a local MMA event and his left arm, I guess he had shoulder or elbow or whatever surgery it was. And then he was asked about it by the media and he said it actually gives him some more time to think. So he he hasn't made a decision yet. Boy, those Bruins. So I, I have a friend. He really hates the Bruins. He cannot stand them. There's not a team he hates more than the Bruins. And he's watching, you know, Bergeron, we don't know if he's playing. And Marchand's going to be out for a few months. And now we get news that McAvoy and Grizzlick and, and Riley are out for a few months. 
And he calls me up this uh, Sunday morning and he says, those bleepers are going to win the lottery and get Connor Bedard next year. That's what he said to me. He said, oh, they're, they're, they're wow. going to they're, they're go all San Antonio Spurs. Oh, that's hilarious. And get Tim Duncan and win Stanley Cups. That's what he said. He said, he said the world exists to make me unhappy, yeah. and nothing will make me more unhappy than the than the Bruins getting Connor Bedard because of all these injuries. I'll tell you what, man. You know what? Um, I mean, you know, you know how I always feel about players getting hip surgery. Yeah, I know. Technically, Brad Marchand can come back in six months, but it's hip surgery. I always give players at least a year. Look at Tyler Sagan. Then NHL history is full of. Yeah, hip surgery. Sure, the player came back, but are they at, are they anywhere close to being the same player? Mm-hmm. Like when I heard it was hip for Brad Marchand, not only did I say, "Oh man, that really sucks for him, sucks for the Bruins," and okay, the timeline is six months. I don't give him six months. He can be back by six months, but he's not going to be Brad Marchand in six months. That's a real drag. He, much like Patrice Bergeron, is like one of, as we all know, one of the best left wingers in the game. Period. Like he's mm-hmm. among the top three. Some will even put him in at number one. So that's a drag. Charlie McAvoy, who we always talk about, you know, gets, you know, shafted when it comes to Norris. Trophy love, shoulder surgery, six months for him. You mentioned Grizzly, five months for him. Like this is, and then if then if Patrice Bergeron uh, packs it in for the career where no one could say, well, he's left some unfinished business in his career. He's done it all. Everybody would understand considering what he's put his body through and what he's already achieved. The Hall of Fame awaits for Patrice Bergeron. In three years. Right? Like right away, sir. Right away. Right away. Right this way. Right this way to the Hall of Fame, Mr. Bergeron, sir. Yes, yes. We've been we've been holding your table. <laughs> it sucks. And to your buddy's point that texted you, that might be the only silver lining here. Yeah, silver lining for who? Not my buddy. For the Boston Bruins. It's <laughs> for anyone watching the Bruins. That's 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 gonna be a tough one for the Beast next year. Like, make no mistake about it. Yeah. I, I just wonder how much they look at this and say especially if Bergeron, you know, calls it a career. I know it's a very competitive market. I know the Boston Bruins love being a competitive team and their fan base expects a competitive team, but sometimes the reality is just the reality. And you look at the nature of these surgeries and specifically the hip with Brad Marchand. I don't know, man, I'd be tempted to almost like if what's the old line, if you're going to miss heaven, don't miss it by two inches. Like if you're going to miss, like miss, because there could be a big reward there. That's what we're just talking about with McDavid. If you're going to go down, go down with him playing 55 minutes. Yeah. We started with him playing 35 minutes. Now we're up to 55. 55 minutes. And next thing you know, he's going to be like Brad McCrimmon with the Brandon Weed Kings. Okay. Looking forward to game four, Monday night, Elliot's. Taking us out, uh, an artist who dropped her folk rock roots to take a more psychedelic approach. I like that. On her sophomore album, Liz Cooper spent most of her life working on her golf game to the point where she earned herself a college scholarship. But that wasn't enough for her. She decided to drop her scholarship and move to Nashville to pursue her love of music. From her latest album, Hot Sass, here's Liz Cooper with Getting Closer on 32 Thoughts, the podcast. <laughs> 